Podcast, a podcast to discuss border-related law issues. Uh, I'm Peter Edelman. I'm joined with uh, Steve, by Stephen Mirens and Deanna Okanachoff, uh, and we're very fortunate to have with us as our guest today, uh, Professor uh, Efrat Arbel from the UBC uh, School of Law. Uh, Efrat has done um, a lot of fascinating work uh, over the past years uh, on both in terms of detention issues and in terms of uh, thinking about the meaning of borders and what borders are, uh, in particular in relation to refugees. Uh, it, aside from her work teaching and, and doing uh, great research, and I, I strongly recommend having a look at some of the, uh, the papers and, and uh, materials that Efrat's written over the past few years. Uh, but uh, she's also very active with the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers, uh, who've done um, some really uh, great advocacy work around uh, some of these issues. So welcome, Efrat. Thank you. Thanks for having me, and thanks for that gracious introduction. So uh, what we're hoping to talk about today is uh, about the, um, you know, what are what are borders and how do they play out, in particular in the context of refugees, but maybe we could talk, uh, for, for starters, about your thinking around uh, what borders have become uh, in, in the contemporary world and in particular with respect to Canada. Yes, uh, so it's, it's a fascinating question and uh, let me answer it in the following ways. A border as we currently understand it, has a variety of different meanings. So the border still operates as a territorial border, a line uh, that demarcates the end of one country and the beginning of another. But for legal purposes, the border means much more. And uh, the interesting thing is that in light of uh, fairly recent changes in our law, the border doesn't necessarily need to be positioned at the edge of territory. It does not need to be positioned where the geographic borderline lies. And that's, uh, for legal purposes, something quite significant, particularly when we're dealing with refugees. So refugees have certain legal rights under Canadian and international law, and many of those rights are triggered upon physical presence at the border or within the border. That's in uh, Canadian uh Canadian law. And so when we are asking what rights refugees are, their physical location in relation to the border becomes very important. But when the border no longer necessarily operates as the border, that raises a whole host of concerns in terms of what rights do those refugees actually have. and so that, that's, that's kind of the starting point, is, is recognizing that the legal border doesn't necessarily align with the territorial border. But for legal purposes, we ascribe an enormous amount of significance to physical positioning in relation to the territorial border. And so we have multiple layers operating at once and great difficulty in ascertaining precisely which rights refugees have uh, depending on where they are. Can you provide some practical examples of where there Mm -hmm. would be an ambiguity? Sure. So um, the Canada Border Services Agency, the CBSA, has developed what's known as the Multiple Borders Strategy, which is a strategy that um, uh, they've uh, articulated for immigration purposes and particularly for the goal of maintaining the border and uh, combating quote-unquote irregular migration. The multiple border strategy provides that for immigration purposes, the border can lie at any point in which a traveler's uh, documents can be inspected. 
And they've actually come up with a, a graph, which is a series of, uh, or a drawing rather, a series of concentric circles with a territorial border lying in the innermost circle, and then a series of circles extending outwards. Um, and these are all legal, legal borders. And those borders are positioned at various locations outside of Canada, in the high seas, uh, in other countries. Uh, one practical example can be uh, um, the uh, workings of uh, what are called liaison officers. So the Canada Border Services Agency has a program, uh, used to be called the Migration Integrity Officer Program, now called Liaison Officers, whereby these are Canadian agents that are tasked with the job of document inspection. And they're positioned offshore in various countries that are known for producing high numbers of refugees. We put these individuals in these various countries for strategic purposes and we task them with the job of border inspection. We say you have the power uh, under our laws whenever you see someone who you think might be undocumented, who you think might be irregular, to inspect their documents. They have very limited powers formally under law, but they can work with local law enforcement and local airlines and uh, uh, various other agencies in these various countries in which they work to prevent would-be refugees from boarding Canada-bound planes or boats. So it's a very long-winded way of saying what the liaison officer program does is it takes the territorial border, the place at which document inspection should take place, and relocates it to various places around the world. Why is this important? Well, when liaison officers work outside of Canada, when they work in these various offshore locations, they're not bound by the same legal obligations as they would be if they were operating in Canadian territory. So number one, they're not bound to comply with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Number two, they're bound by international law, but it's very difficult to enforce their compliance when they're operating offshore. And so we have uh, story after story after story of would-be refugee claimants who are trying to seek asylum in Canada through the regular channels, try to board a plane from uh, whatever country they're leaving, but are stopped because of these uh, liaison officers and are never actually able to make it onto Canadian territory and claim the protections that we would otherwise give them. Now, in this context that you're describing, would this be then at an airport uh, or would the liaison officers work in other locations beyond airports? Because it's hard to see how they would physically stop people outside of an airport from traveling to Canada. So they have very broad jurisdiction and it, their, their powers are not very well defined. I've looked at some of their training manuals, the ones I was able to obtain through freedom of information requests, and even through all the information that I was able to obtain, it's not entirely clear where their powers begin and end. Uh, typically, from most of the stories that I know, they do work in airports. However, they also liaise, so to speak, with uh, law enforcement agencies at these various uh, these various other countries. And so um, their power extends beyond the airport, even if they're physically operating primarily in airports or or uh, or, or um, docks. And so uh, you mentioned that you obtained information through Access to Information mm -hmm. Act requests. What sort of information would you get? And is any of it public? Like, would we 
would anyone be able to go to a Canada, a government of Canada website and see what the agreement is between, I don't know, Canada and Saudi Arabia as to what the power of CBSA officers in Saudi Arabia are? Uh, there is some information, but not enough. So the CBSA, the Canada Border Services uh, Agency website, details the number of liaison officers and the number of countries in which they are positioned, but does not um, specify much beyond the list of countries and the numbers themselves. Um, so uh, no, we wouldn't be able to get the specific kind of information that, that you're speaking of. And the difficulty with liaison officers is that so much of the information that we have is anecdotal. Uh, we have some stories of individuals being intercepted uh, in these various offshore locations, but typically these are only stories that we hear of because the person who was intercepted had a family member who was here in Canada who was aware of this taking place, who took this case on and pursued it, and that's how we found out about exactly what took place. Otherwise, these are individuals that are operating under the law, but at its shadows. So in areas of, of really am, ambiguous legal zones where it's not quite clear how far Canadian law goes and uh, what takes place in these, in these various locations. Um, in terms of practical mm -hmm. uh, interdiction, I mean, mm -hmm. a, a bulk, in, in my experience, a bulk of the interdiction is done by the airlines themselves. Mm -hmm. And so we see airlines being fined significant amounts yes. um, or, more importantly, having to pay the return costs mm -hmm. uh, of people who arrive without proper documentation. Yes. Um, is Do you want to talk a little bit about the, the role of airlines and, and, cruise, uh, and mm -hmm. cruise lines or, or, or mm -hmm. shipping lines? I think mostly we're talking about airlines, but mm -hmm. uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that context sure. yes. uh, as well? That's another example of this shifting border. We have, through this multiple border strategy, relocated the border to uh, uh, airlines, mid-flight, to uh, uh, ships that are, that are crossing the ocean. And we've, as you've said, we've empowered these individuals to really exercise what is a border control function, uh, making the decision as to who enters and according to what terms. But these are, these are airline personnel who are not either trained in Canadian refugee law or aware of what the Charter of Rights and Freedoms entails, etc. You say empowered, mm -hmm. uh, would conscripted be a better, uh, conscripted would be, would be a better, be a better term? term. Yes, it, yes, maybe the perception yes, yes, from yes. the airlines might yes, be... Uh... Yes, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, conscripted <laughs> would be a better term. Uh, so as you've said, we have we have several cases of airlines uh, arriving in Canada with individuals who are improperly documented uh, and then find large sums for doing so. We also have stories of uh, boats who uh, uh, the, the crew of, of, of one vessel or another discovers uh, an improperly documented person or a stowaway, as they're often called, on board, oftentimes mid-journey in the middle of the high seas, uh, and are then left with the challenge of deciding what to do at that point in time. So Canada, like the United States, like several other countries, imposes carrier sanctions, much like they do on airlines, on vessels that arrive in Canada carrying improperly documented people. And so for, for these vessels, it's a, it's a difficult decision of do we make the journey arrive on Canadian shores knowing that we're going to be fined these huge amounts or do we take matters into our own hands? 
we have uh, we know of several stories where the uh, crew decided to take matters into their own hands and did so in in horrific ways of deciding to throw the individuals overboard uh, in the middle of the high seas and just be done with them so as to avoid these 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 financial penalties and of course their criteria are what are the like what's the likelihood of them attracting financial liability yes. nothing to do with the 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 broader context for providing refugee protection. Of course. They're yes. not motivated by that at all. Yes. And we hear of these stories uh, very infrequently because most often these individuals don't survive. Mm-hmm. So we have a, a Canadian case and we have one U.S. case, the U.S. case being a, an atrocious story of of five men who made their their presence known mid-journey because they uh, two of them, I believe, or several of them had fallen ill. And uh, it was a vessel that was uh, uh, leaving Southeast Asia and, and heading to Texas. And they uh, made their presence known in the middle of the high seas and asked the crew for help because they were sick and weren't going to survive. And the crew decided to throw them overboard. They threw, I believe, two or three of the men overboard, but it gave them a um, lifeboat. And so they managed to survive. I have to look it up. Um, But are we talking like last 10 years? Yes, the last 10 years. Um, And then they threw the remaining men off uh, overboard, and they uh, didn't have a... uh, anything to protect them. As it happens, there was another vessel that uh, just happened to be crossing that particular waterway very soon after the men in the in the lifeboat were thrown overboard and they rescued them. And they went back to search for the other men and found their shark-eaten bodies. Uh, that second vessel eventually carried them to the United States where they filed a lawsuit in Texas. But the court lacked jurisdiction to make any sort of determination. This was a, a foreign uh, vessel staffed by a foreign crew, uh, activities that took place in the high seas, non-territorial waters. Uh, and so beyond giving a general condemnation of the horrors that had taken place and how awful it is that this is the, 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 you know, situation that, that we're, that we're encountering in this day and age. And that particular decision, uh, did so in, you know, very strong and forceful terms. There was nothing legally that could be done. And that's, again, the, 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 the legal difficulties of manipulating the location of the border in this way. We have clearly illegal action taking place. We have would-be refugees who are not given the right to a hearing or uh, rights under Section 7 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms as they would be uh, were they physically present on state soil. Rather, we have refugees being uh, uh, thrown overboard in the middle of the high seas. We have refugees being um, uh, pushed out of, uh, or prior to boarding, but pushed out of uh, airplanes and prevented from making these journeys, and and very few legal remedies available to them because of that um, legal ambiguity there. Yeah, I remember watching a movie on this when I was younger, mm-hmm. um, and it's a movie that was based on a true story that I just looked up the title of for those who uh, might want to watch based on a real story movie based on this called Deadly Voyage uh, and it was a 1996 film uh, about the true story of the MC Ruby in 1992 where people who were trying to claim refugee status and were discovered on a cargo ship uh, were discovered by the crew and attempted to be cast overboard and I won't get into the endings or anything but it was a a movie worth watching that kind of illustrates this uh, this topic. But I think in many ways, it seems like the direction that we are, the policy direction we're going in is for more early detection for the purposes of preventing entry as opposed to uh, the opposite. 
Well, in Canada, uh, you know, as we know, just the new electronic travel authorization, which is for people who aren't from visa uh, requiring countries, traditionally people from Europe, Japan, Australia could just board planes and travel to Canada. Now they have to fill out an online form on the CIC or IRCC website and get pre-approval to travel. And the Canada Border Services Agency, uh, the government of Canada or the, through the CBSA will tell the airlines board, don't board, um, which just further expands on that notion that you just brought up. Sure. I can I can tell you another story about the liaison officers that kind of that, that kind of brings the issue to light as well. So this is a a story that actually comes from uh, from Andrew Brower, who's a who's a refugee lawyer out in Ontario, of an individual who he refers to as Mr. K. So, Mr. K was an Iranian refugee who was uh, a journalist who was persecuted for his pro-reform views, and he fled Iran to seek uh, protection in Canada, where his brother was a citizen. So his reason for coming to Canada was, of course, this familiar connection. He flew from Iran to Moscow and then from Moscow to Havana using false uh, documents. And his uh, intention was to connect from Havana to Canada. He was stopped by a liaison officer in Havana. Um, that liaison officer barred him from boarding his Canada-bound plane because he lacked the proper identity documents. Now, under both Canadian and international law, there are protections existing for refugees. The recognition that it's very difficult to flee a country in which you are persecuted with proper identity documents. And so the international and Canadian law prohibits Canada from imposing penalties on refugees from doing so. Uh, not this notwithstanding, the liaison officer uh, denied him the ability to board this Canada-bound plane. He was therefore stuck in Havana, which is not party to the UN hike uh, to the UN Refugee Commission uh, Convention. Sorry, he was sent back to Moscow. Uh, at during this time, his brother here in Canada reached out to the Canadian UNHCR, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. They negotiated with the UNHCR in Moscow to try to prevent him from being sent back to Iran, but their efforts were unsuccessful, and he was returned to Iran to, to face the very persecution that he was fleeing. And so throughout this entire journey, his ability to claim the protections that our law extends to him were fundamentally limited as a result of these manipulations and these kind of ambiguities as to precisely where the border lies and where these where these obligations begin and end. And I think it might be helpful to for us to talk a little bit about the overall context of refugee flows because the idea that Canada, because of our geographical location, has a significant ability and and is willing to put significant resources mm -hmm. into controlling refugee flows. Yes. Um, where are most of the refugees ending up? Ah, uh, well, most of the world's refugees are, are stuck uh, very close to conflict zones. Most of the refugees who try to come here get stuck in the United States. Um, so you're absolutely right, because of our geographic positioning, it is, it is very difficult for refugees to make it here. Uh, unless they have the, the resources and the support to do so. And we have invested an enormous amount of resources in pr actively preventing refugees from being able to make it here. And this is one of the things that I found most troubling about our approach to refugee protection is we have this, 
this narrative that Canada has, leads the world in refugee protection. We're very proud of our generosity. We've been uh, recognized and commended for our generous efforts, most recently with respect to the resettlement of, of Syrian refugees. And I don't mean to, to diminish the value of those efforts that we have shown tremendous generosity and have done enormous uh, uh, things in support of refugees, particularly uh, recently, not so much under the previous administration. Uh, but at the same time, as we extend this open, generous, rights-protecting uh, arm to the world's refugees, we uh, have uh, unbelievably restrictive, hostile um, uh, policies of, of, in my mind, questionable legality uh, to keep as many refugees as we can out. Right. So for the reasons that Steve described too, it means that the situation in which somebody won't have to interface with an mm -hmm. immigration official before boarding a plane, mm -hmm. they've basically been eliminated except for Americans, that either you're going to require a visa or you're going to require an electronic travel authorization. Yes. So the notion of having to be able to make yourself present at a Canadian border has mm -hmm. become fundamentally more challenging. Yes, very much so. Well, and when we, when we look at the visa requirements as well, we see with Mexico, for example, the lifting of the visa requirement has been specifically tied to uh, that the visa requirement is going to come back mm -hmm. if there's a certain number of refugee claims that have yes. been made, which yes. is, again, you look at the list of, of refugee-producing countries, um, and when we look at the big numbers, mm -hmm. the big numbers of refugees in the world mm -hmm. are in countries neighboring yes. Somalia, neighboring mm -hmm. Afghanistan, neighboring Syria. Yes. They're, they're the countries like Lebanon and Jordan mm -hmm. and Kenya and Pakistan and Iran that have millions yes. of refugees. And for us, to, we're talking about resettling 25,000, yes. uh, which is a big number for us. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, rightfully... Uh, there's some pride in that, mm -hmm. but when you look at the overall numbers, we're talking yes. about very small numbers. Very small numbers, yes, and we have the luxury of, of uh, resources and territory. We have an ability to accept many more than we have, um, and yet we are taking such stark measures to prevent people from coming here. Now, you mentioned that many of the uh, refugees who try to come to Canada are mm -hmm. stuck in the U.S., yes. and we're going to talk about the safe third country uh, agreement in a second, but before mm -hmm. we do, in terms of extending the border, mm -hmm. Um, what is the case, and I know there's this uh, perception, especially uh, with uh, because Julian Assange has claimed asylum at an embassy, mm -hmm. does someone have the ability to claim refugee status at a Canadian embassy abroad? Like, how does the embassy fit into the geographic location of a border? Like, is an embassy part of Canada that someone in, say, Lebanon can go to the Canadian embassy and uh, just claim asylum there? So that's a tricky question, and it's uh, been answered in different ways by different uh, refugee scholars. Uh, strictly speaking, an embassy is obviously regarded as Canadian jurisdiction. However, uh, the most persuasive response that I've uh, been able to find is that a Canadian embassy does not actually legally... Um, there, there is no equivalent between the Canadian embassy and Canadian territory. So you are under Canadian jurisdiction, but you are not on Canadian soil. Canadian soil only begins where the territorial border lies. And so you do have some protections if you are to set foot in a Canadian embassy. You um, are, like I said, subject to or under Canadian jurisdiction, but you can't claim the same protections that you could 
if you were to set foot on Canadian soil. And the key distinction here is protection under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So, you know, one of the Supreme Court of Canada's very, very early refugee decisions in the, the, the uh, Singh decision in 1985, the court recognized that refugees who are physically present at or within the border have basic constitutional protection under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and those protections wouldn't extend to an embassy. So they're, they're competing interests, essentially, the, the one being Canada's international commitment and obligations with respect to treatment of refugees, mm -hmm. and then, as Peter was talking about, essentially inventory control. Mm -hmm. And it seems from what we're, we're talking about that the, the mechanisms used for inventory control are just not informed by the same principles as the as those that go to actually the refugee determination process. Yes, that's so that's the true. issue essentially. That's yes, that's exactly it. And and there's another dimension there too in that the mechanisms we use for quote unquote inventory control are in and of themselves ineffective. So the fact that we dedicate all this uh, all these resources to preventing refugees from coming here works but only to a certain extent. Uh, refugees don't stop fleeing persecution just because we've tightened the border. They just turn to human smugglers. Sometimes they're taken advantage of by human traffickers. And so with the increasing tightening of the border with this uh, 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 mechanisms that quote unquote push the border out and make it harder and harder for refugees to come here through lawful channels by air or sea or land, uh, we've seen the border itself, the territorial border, become less and less secure, become uh, more prone to um, unauthorized, illegal, dangerous activities, human smugglers, human traffickers, um, uh, uh, people crossing without being accounted for. And this connects to the Safe Third Country Agreement uh, very directly. Uh, in advance of this, then we'll, we'll turn to the agreement in a minute, but. It, Back in the early 2000s, before these, the full extent of these of these mechanisms had been rolled out, the the estimate was that roughly 95% of border crossers were accounted for. There was a clear system of processing refugees done in cooperation with partners in the United States, with partners elsewhere in the in the world, where uh, the Canadian authorities knew who was entering, uh, where from who was claiming protection and on what grounds. And the people were accounted for. Now we've seen a sharp reduction in that number. We have far less control of who is crossing when. We know that in between border crossing points, the border is dangerous and disorderly. We hear of horrible stories of, of people putting their, their lives and safety at risk just to come here. There are some who would say that, um, that the, I mean, I think that this was actually the, the policy mandate of the previous government was to ensure that refugee, like identification of uh, refugees would be happening overseas. Mm -hmm. So um, I just kind of want to bring that into the conversation too, in terms of um, what is preventing that from being the viable means of making a claim for refugee protection. Well, the difficulty in making refugee determinations overseas is how, how precisely would you do that? So 
determining whether or not an individual is a refugee is actually a, a, a complicated legal process. I mean, you, you folks can speak to that in much more detail than I can. Um, it requires a hearing, it requires evidence, it requires a, a, an assessment as to whether or not the individual satisfies the terms of the international refugee definition, which is a very uh, difficult definition that requires uh, proof of, of, of a variety of, of, of different things. Uh, it requires an assessment as to credibility. It requires an assessment as to country conditions, uh, possibilities of fleeing. And uh, there's a, 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 a lot of determinations that need to be made. These determinations, uh, when we operate in Canada, are made by the Immigration Refugee Board after a hearing. Uh, we don't have the ability to do that offshore. Uh, we can't set up shop in uh, various places offshore and, and uh, send our decision makers there and our lawyers there and have this, uh, this uh, proceeding that actually satisfies our own legal requirements of what we need for procedural fairness and for administrative justice. Well, I mean, to be fair to uh, to Minister Kenny, uh, which I, I can't believe I'm saying that, but let's just say, let's just put it let's just put it there. Uh, the, the position that was taken from uh, at the time, um, and, and I don't, uh, to a certain extent, I'm not sure it's an it's an unreasonable argument, is that the there is a mechanism for triage overseas, mm -hmm. and that's the UNHCR and other mechanisms. And there's essentially, from Canada's perspective, an unlimited supply mm -hmm. of essentially vetted refugees. In other words, that, that are people who are identifiable as refugees in the camps or, or mm -hmm. through other mechanisms. Mm -hmm. And the, the goal from the conservative government's perspective was mm -hmm. to stop the uncontrolled flows, yes. um, in other words, the claimants mm -hmm. coming here, mm -hmm. um, what they refer referred to as queue jumpers or, or self-selected refugees, yes. um, who do, in, in fairness, tend to fit a certain privileged profile. Mm -hmm. In other words, the fact that you can make it here yes. already puts you in a relatively privileged position. You're mm -hmm. probably not a single mom with six kids. Mm -hmm. Um, you're probably not, you know, so I mean, we can talk about the people who don't fit into that mm -hmm. category mm -hmm. of people who can actually make it here from, mm -hmm. from say, Pakistan or, mm -hmm. or uh, mm -hmm. Lebanon. And that those other flows mm -hmm. can be controlled. And the, the big advantage is that you can then set mm -hmm. a certain number in the levels mm -hmm. and can the Canadian public can have a discussion and say, we're going to allow X number of refugees. Mm -hmm. And you can then drop that number, raise mm -hmm. that number mm -hmm. as the political winds might blow. Mm -hmm. um, so what's what's wrong with that reasoning? What do, what's or what's your what what do you what do you see as the problem with that reasoning? There are several things that I see as problematic with that reasoning. Number one, you're right to say that any uh, refugee who can make it here has a measure of privilege that other refugees who are stuck in refugee camps will not. But that does not diminish their need for protection or the severity of the persecution from which they flee. Persecution uh, takes on a variety of different forms. And once you are subject to it, and once you do have that well-founded fear of persecution, your life and safety is at risk. And it doesn't matter how much privilege you have, and it doesn't matter where in the world you are fleeing from. Uh, you are a refugee, and you are deserving of protection. So the, the, uh, I, I understand where the distinction lies and I understand the rationale for it, but I think it ignores the very real reality that when you flee from persecution, you are deserving of protection, full stop. Uh, 
I also think that the uh, logic in that reasoning or the, the, the scenario that you outlined is that it presumes that, that one approach must be done uh, and only one approach must be done, that we must choose between these these two different approaches to absorbing refugees. And I just don't understand why that's the case. We have mechanisms both to triage overseas, to cooperate with the UNHCR as we do and as we have done, and to process refugees, refugee claimants who arrive here uh, do, out of their own volition and who arrive at our shores. The numbers that come, that arrive at our shores are, are not very large and we do have the resources and the mechanisms to absorb them. So suggesting that we can only do one versus the other is to me a nonsensical argument. And third, and perhaps the strongest uh, uh, problem that I see with this approach, it's not a gap, it's not a problem with the, the reasoning or the logic behind it, rather the political motivations. Uh, that underpin it. Um, ha oh, assuming an approach to refugee protection that says Canada chooses who we admit when and under what circumstances is prone to uh, abuse at the hands of whatever politician might be in power. Uh, of saying we as a country no longer want refugees, we only want refugees from X location, we only want refugees who fit this profile. And that, to me, the reason that I use a word as strong as abuse is just contrary to the very letter and the spirit of the Refugee Convention that we ourselves are signatory to. We have made a commitment to protect refugees, full stop. And by making this commitment, we are uh, limited in our ability to choose where they come from. So where does like so do you agree with uh, or what are your thoughts on the uh, current government's declaration that if the number of Mexican asylum seekers exceeds 3,500 then the visa requirement is reimposed or really a visa requirement on any country where uh, as we noted it's light it's done in a lot of cases because these are countries where they've determined that there would be a risk of people who are arriving with all or would be at a higher disposition to possibly claim refugee status. So I, our history with Mexico is 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 a very uh, long and troubled history in that we have imposed visa obligations on Mexico in various points in our history for the specific purpose of stemming refugee flows. And the previous administration labeled Mexico as a safe country for refugees, notwithstanding the fact that there was or as a designated country of origin, rather, notwithstanding evidence that it clearly was not in order to stem refugee flows. Uh, my uh, thinking in that is I understand the uh, vast numbers of individuals who come here from Mexico claiming refugee protection, and I understand that not all of those claims have merit, and some of them will fail. But I think that a commitment to refugee protection means that we have to come up with a mechanisms to process those claims, and we can't just preemptively decide that these individuals are not refugees or that we will only grant them visas if they don't exceed certain numbers or that we will deem Mexico to be safe or not safe, all these various mechanisms that we've implemented over the years. If we open our borders, if we uh, maintain this tradition of generosity towards refugees, then we have to invest the resources and come up with the mechanisms to process them. So do you think Canada should have visa requirements against any countries or...? I, I absolutely think that Canada should have visa requirements. There, uh, I'm a critic of uh, the imposition of visas on uh, quote-unquote refugee-producing states for the key 
identified objective of stemming refugee flows. That is where I see the problem lying. Canada has... uh, is completely justifying and imposing visas on 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 travelers who come here. There are a variety of legitimate and worthwhile reasons for doing so. But imposing refugees, sorry, imposing visa requirements in order to stem refugee flows is again a, a, a situation where we're saying one thing and then we're doing another. We're claiming adherence with the Refugee Convention. We're claiming that we're generous and protecting and opening our borders, but we're doing the very things that 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 undermine uh, that that spirit of generosity. So essentially, if there was a mechanism in place for Mexican claimants, Mm -hmm. for example, to have a a decision made as to the merit of their refugee claim, then there's nothing wrong with saying at that point that you're not entitled to come. It's the idea that uh, the inventory control mechanism is informed by totally different motivations than there's absolutely nothing wrong with determining that individual is not a refugee and sending them back. Um, but there is something wrong in deeming them to be not a refugee before being able to make that determination. I, mean, I think for me, in terms of my own thinking around this, it's always helpful to go back and think about why the Refugee Convention came into effect in the mm-hmm. first place. And Canada has a very um, shameful history mm-hmm. with respect to the context within which it came into effect. And yes. I, I think the SS St. Louis is probably one of the most mm-hmm. striking examples, yes. which was a ship, and, and the, the Refugee Convention was signed after the Second World War and after the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. And the SS St. Louis was a ship that had sailed with uh, a large number of Jews mm-hmm. um, that left Germany and went to a number of countries, including Canada, where it was turned away. Mm-hmm. And the... Uh, the ship went back, and and uh, many of those people died in the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. And the that's the none is too many, uh, the famous and, none is too many. Quote. Correct. And there was a quote at that time from uh, the none is too none. No Jews is too many. None is too many was the the amount that of what was going to be acceptable in Canada at the time. And the the issue that arises, and I think that in terms of thinking this through, when we talk about the numbers. We talk about, you know, whatever the six million Jews or others who who died in the Holocaust. Um, How many of those should Canada have taken? Should we have taken 10,000? Should we have taken 15,000 and let the rest of them die? Or should there be a certain number that we would take if all the countries had actually engaged? And this is ultimately what the Refugee Convention was about. The Refugee Convention is about... This is a humanitarian crisis, yes. and everybody pitches in, yes. because no one country could take in six million people without significant social upheaval. Yes. But if everybody pitched in, it was realistic to yes. resettle six million people, just like today it's realistic to resettle whatever the numbers that we have, 60 million, with a significantly larger world population, significantly expanded resources. Mm -hmm. And what it comes down to, from my perspective, is that we need to figure out what the position is of all the countries. Mm -hmm. And that when one country like Canada says it's okay to engage in interdiction, it sends a message to everybody else that you too, Australia, you too, Italy, you too, Greece, you too, uh, the United States, whatever, can engage in this kind of behavior. Yes. And that's what ended up sending the SS St. Louis back. Yes. 
And so yes. ultimately, that's, um, I, I think, uh, sometimes we forget yes. what led to the Refugee Convention in the first mm -hmm. place. And this is not disconnected from what's going on in Aleppo today. No, it it's not, not mm -hmm. disconnected. And, and I think those are the, um, a lot of the challenges that I find and I struggle in terms of engaging in this discussion mm -hmm. um, is in terms of looking at these cases and then we get we always fall back into this levels discussion in Canada mm -hmm. well we have these levels and we've only set aside this number and blah 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 and and it's like well yeah and if the number zero which it was when the SS St. Louis showed up mm -hmm. then none is too many yes and we all know what happens and so those are the, uh, I think, some of the um, challenges that uh, that I face in terms of engaging in this. I, I really struggle in engaging in the levels discussion yes. when it comes to refugees. Yes. Um, I mean, I, I struggle with the levels. We've had this discussion on the podcast before. I, I have issues with the levels in the first place, but let's just say that the, I particularly struggle with it in the, in the context of refugees. Um, so in, all, all that to say, so that wasn't my, that's my my little rant I got to, but uh, with respect to um, uh, coming back to our biggest border mm -hmm. with the United States yes. um, let's uh, launch into the safe third country sure. agreement because I've uh, yes obviously obviously managed to screw this up before so why don't, why don't we start off by talking about what the safe third country is, agreement is and then I can uh, uh, sure so the safe third country Peter only agreement. says that we've managed to screw it up before because a listener emailed him and pointed out a a small little error that he uh, that, that we may have made on a previous podcast and which we're going to fix today <laughs> well, not to, sorry not just a listener yes. but we were good <laughs> the pressure's on now yeah. the pressure's on yeah. Well, the Safe Third Country Agreement is a bilateral agreement between Canada and the United States that came into effect in December of 2004. The premise of the agreement is that Canada and the United States recognize each other as safe countries for refugees. And the way the agreement operates is that we obligate a refugee who first sets foot on U.S. soil to make their refugee claim in the United States. And the United States obliges us uh, any refugee who makes who first sets foot on Canadian soil must make their refugee claim in Canada. What that means for practical reasons is that if you are a refugee and you are fleeing persecution in, for example, Mexico, and for whatever reason you want to seek asylum in Canada, for example, you uh, have family members here, uh, actually family members is not the right ex uh, uh, example because there's an exception, but Never mind that detour. You have uh, every intention of making a refugee claim in Canada, but in the course of leaving Mexico and arriving in Canada, you've set foot on U.S. soil, whether that's for one hour or one day or one year. If you then show up at the Canada-U.S. border and say, I am here to make a claim of refugee protection, you will be sent back to the United States. Unless you can satisfy one of four... Uh, fairly narrow uh, exceptions, those exceptions being, number one, uh, you have a family member in Canada, uh, number two, you are an unaccompanied minor, number three, you can show the proper documentation, or number four, you fit within what's what's been referred to as a public policy exception, which for our purposes in Canada has really been construed quite narrowly to apply to uh, refugees who are subject to the death penalty and therefore can't um, seek protection in the United States. The practical effect of this agreement is to shut the border down for 
large, large, large numbers of refugees because of the various interdiction policies and offshore screening mechanisms that we spoke of before. It's exceedingly difficult for refugees, even those who do have means, to come here by air or water. Uh, and the Safe Third Country Agreement effectively blocks countless more refugees from seeking protection by land. It, it shuts down our biggest uh, land border and um, its effect has been to s reduce the number of refugees who can claim protection at the border by about half since its implementation. Now, why should, uh, like, why shouldn't, why wouldn't someone who's in the United States want to claim status in the United States instead of Canada? So, uh, this is one of my major criticisms with the Safe Third Country Agreement. It is, as I mentioned, premised on the assumption that the United States is safe for refugees. My position and the position of many, uh, including uh, a large number of scholars and uh, lawyers in the United States, is that the United States is actually not safe for refugees. And why would Canada be safer than the United States? Well, the United States falls very uh, far below basic international standards of refugee protection. The United States is an outlier among uh, common law jurisdictions in terms of its interpretation of some of the most basic provisions of the refugee definition and the refugee convention. Uh, the United States has a particularly awful record with respect to uh, certain religious and minority groups. The United States has a particularly awful record with respect to uh, gender-related persecution and women who are fleeing gender-related persecution, especially when that persecution occurs in domestic settings like domestic violence. So the kinds of recognitions that we made uh, in the early 1990s that women who are subject to domestic violence are subject to persecution, that persecution can take place at the hands of spouses and uncles and family members, not just state agents, is, is a, a point in the law that the United States is just now getting close to arriving at, but still hasn't arrived at. And so if you are a member of a religious minority, particularly in light of a Trump presidency, if you are a, a, a woman who's suffered domestic violence, if you are a, um, LGBTQ, uh, another uh, subgroup of refugees that the United States has an awful track record uh, on, or if you are caught by the various uh, procedural restrictions that the United States imposes on refugees that the rest of the world does not, you cannot claim protection in the United States. You do not have the same likelihood of obtaining the kind of protection that you would in the in Canada. I, I mean, I remember one of my, my first uh, cases that I did, I mean, many years ago, was a police officer from El Salvador mm -hmm. um, who had put away a large number of gang members. Um, and he had been threatened by the gangs. He had been, uh, his house had been bombed. Um, and the he went to a hearing in the United States. And he was found, every, his story was believed. He was found to be at risk if he returned. The judge said, look, I believe that you're at risk. I believe that you're going to, that you're going to be killed if you go back to El Salvador. And I believe that the police can't protect you. Um, but in the technicalities of U.S. law, you don't fall into our definition of a particular social group and therefore your claim is rejected yes. and he showed up at the border here and obviously in Canadian law we have a broader uh, in particular when it comes to section 97 but also to other uh, mechanisms within our law in terms of the way we've interpreted the convention and the way that we protect people um, it was a, a bit of a 
uh, a very straightforward case in Canada because there had been very detailed, credible information in the United States. Yes. Um, Can you be more specific, though, Peter? Like, why would that have succeeded in Canada where it couldn't? What was the... the So there were two two issues with respect to that case. So in in one is that our definition of, in terms of the five convention grounds, um, race, we've talked about these before, but race, religion, nationality, political opinion, and then membership in a particular social group. And this is the one, membership in a particular social group is the one where there's a lot of flexibility there in terms of being able to expand or restrict that definition. So in your example, and what would have been the social group flip? Well, being a former police officer, because the, the idea is that, or even being, uh, the idea in Canada is that if it's something that is historical or inherent about you, that you can't undo, you can't get rid of this status, then you you then become part of what that is, right? And so we see that in a number of different areas, whether it's apostasy, whether it's uh, um, gender-based claims, whether it's sexual orientation, whether it's it's something about your status, or it may be something about your status historically. In other words, that you were a member of a certain party, or that you were a member of a certain religion or group or identifiable uh group of people who are being persecuted um, because of their historical connections or because of what they had done in the past or where they had been in the past. And in this case, it's with respect to him, his profession or his former profession, because he, you know, even if he left the police, he would still be targeted. So in Canada, we often don't get into these debates in the same way because we have another mechanism in the law which is section 97. So section 96 in our in our law deals with convention grounds. Section 97 deals with uh, people who are at risk of cruel and unusual treatment or punishment in a much broader way. And so it requires a higher threshold of proof, but it doesn't require a connection to these somewhat artificial convention grounds. In other words, if you're not persecuted on a convention ground, in other words, if someone just wants to kill you because um, to get you because they think you're rich or they because they think that you've got uh, you know it's you're not connected. And we see this with gang cases very commonly where people are being targeted, but it's not technically on a convention ground. Um, Section ninety seven will come into play, right. and so that's where these cases tend to get resolved in Canada, and so we don't end up in the same debates around the limits of particular social group as they do in the United States. But our definition is broader in any event of particular social group, or at least my or so I shouldn't say broader; I should say different, mm-hmm. um, because there's there's a different um, approach to that. So if someone um, showed up at the border and said, I want to make a Section 97 claim, not a refugee claim, does the safe third country agreement apply? It does. And, and, this is, and I think that part of, part of the um, oddities of the safe third country agreement, and, and I think one of the things I think is helpful, would be helpful for us to talk about, one, because I screwed it up last time, uh, <laughs> and two, because it, it creates a lot of odd behavior, uh, is with respect to the exemptions. Mm-hmm. And so... First, with and perhaps you do you do you want to talk in in a bit more detail about what the specific exemptions are sure. to the safe third country agreement? So where does it apply, and when doesn't it apply? So the uh, 
A safe third country agreement applies to all refugee claimants at the territorial border. Uh, the exceptions to it are that if you can show that you have a family member in Canada, you will be permitted entry into Canada. If you can prove that you have the correct documentation, if you are an unaccompanied minor, or if you fit within uh, what's referred to as public policy exceptions, which in Canada has been fairly narrowly interpreted as being subject to the death penalty. Those are the exceptions. The exceptions have, since the implementation of the agreement, been arbitrarily and inconsistently applied. There are no clear standards to determine what is required to prove that you, in fact, have a family member in Canada. Uh, we have some stories of individuals who come and say, I have a Canadian citizen sister and I have another sister who is recognized as a convention refugee in Canada. Those two sisters will call the uh, CBSA officer, the Canada Border Services Agency officer, and attest to the fact that this is correct. The individual, the refugee claimant, will produce uh, five, six, seven identity documents showing the common last name with the Canadian citizen sister, uh, showing uh, proof of, of ID, showing uh, that he is, in fact, who he says he is. And that might not be enough. And so if that's not enough, then what is? The determination of who actually does have a family member and who does not have a family member is left to the whim of individual border agents. Sometimes they get it right. Sometimes they don't. And what recourse does someone have if they believe that that de determination has been made incorrectly? In the case of the individual that I uh, spoke to, who is, who is a real individual who, who uh, eventually had his claim resolved, he was sent back to detention. He spent uh, a significant amount of time in the United States detained. He had uh, the sheer luck of... of working with a number of very well-connected individuals in the United States who were able to contact a lawyer in Canada and advise that lawyer of the situation. And that lawyer took on his case and through uh, concerted coordination between the advocacy group in the United States and the lawyers in Canada, they were able to file a suit between the before the Federal Court of Canada. Uh, the Federal Court of Canada considered the case, determined that the, that the assessment was made incorrectly, and uh, sent the matter back for redetermination. So that's the legal recourse that is available. However, it is beyond reach for most. It is not something that most refugee claimants can access. This is not a procedure that is easy. It is a procedure that is time-consuming, that requires uh, the assistance of a well-trained lawyer that is expensive, um, and that is very difficult to navigate if you uh, do not have the language skills, if you do not have the know-how, if you do not have the connections, and if you, like most refugees who arrive here, um, have suffered uh, post-traumatic stress disorder uh, or some other uh, form of trauma that prevents you from functioning in the way that this kind of procedure requires you to function. And the other challenge with these cases is that you also need to, in many cases, intervene before the person is sent back to the United States, yes. which you're at the land border. It happens very, very quickly. Yes. And if the United States puts them in detention, you can get all the decisions from our federal court that you want. Mm -hmm. The person could still face deportation back to their home country from the yes. United States. There's no guarantee you're going to get them back here. Mm. Um, 
which brings me to the, the one of the oddities of the, and, and I think that there are two things that are important to mention just while we're on the we, we are on the exemptions. Mm-hmm. One is that we're talking about the land port of entries, mm-hmm. um, and you you alluded to this before. Mm-hmm. Um, but what this creates is a situation where if you come across the land border, not at a port of entry, mm-hmm. then the safe third country agreement doesn't apply to you. Yes. Um, and creates this incentive for people to cross illegally, yes. um, both in at high risk uh, to themselves, um, and uh, um, so you know. We're often my, you know, I have clients who've been, bit, you know, the more uh, common situation is where you're at risk because of the dogs or whatever else are used mm-hmm. in terms of border enforcement, but. The people who are helping you to cross or, or whatnot also mm-hmm. can place you at risk. Yes. Yeah. Um, the other, uh, and, and maybe we can talk about that uh, that exemption uh, mm-hmm. for a little a little bit because it does create this broader issue. Mm-hmm. The second oddity, and this is the one that I uh, I have to thank Janet Dench from the uh, who's the executive director at the Canadian Council of <laughs> Refugees, which. Uh, I'm, Shout out to Janet. I'm glad you're listening to the podcast. <laughs> Hi, I'm, I'm sorry that we're not up to the standards. Uh, so for those of those who are not familiar with Janet, Janet is uh, uh, one of the most broadly versed uh, people in uh, in Canada when it comes to refugee issues and refugee law um, and uh, knows more about this area than most lawyers. Um, the uh, with respect to the second exemption, which has to do with whether or not you have the proper documents. And this is where the lifting of the, the visa requirement from a country like Mexico actually makes a significant difference yes. because you can make claims at the port of entry mm-hmm. from the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and given the current climate in the United States, mm-hmm. Uh, for undocumented uh, Mexicans in particular, um, this could have a significant impact. And so mm-hmm. I think it was important to clarify yes, that because yes, yeah. I think we, um, and, and thank you to Janet for, for getting in touch with us and, yeah. and in a very uh, <laughs> diplomatic way, letting us know, let, help, helping us to understand the, uh, or, or reminding us about how the exemptions actually work. So, uh, but maybe we can talk about the, the, the actual practical implication of those two exemptions sure, and, sure. and what oddities those create as a result. Well, and there is one other exemption that I think is pretty significant. Does it apply to Americans, the safe third country agreement? Yes, yeah, so it's a bilateral agreement. Everything that we agree to, the United States. Oh, no, no. I mean, can America, if an American oh, citizen appears at a port of entry to claim refugee status, does the safe third country agreement say, no, you can't claim it because the United States is a safe country for refugee claimants? No, so the safe third country agreement does not apply to American citizens. However, the United States has been designated a designated country of origin, uh, meaning that uh, any American who seeks to make a refugee claim in Canada will be subject to that procedure. So, it, it, I mean, it, it's a little bit quirky to me. Like, I don't know what the history, like, if during when they were drafting it, why they would say, well, if you're not American, the safe third country agreement, you know, the United States is a safe place for refugees, for people who are fleeing their governments to claim refugee protection. Mm-hmm. But if you're American, uh, it may not be safe. And so you can still claim refugee protection. Like, was there any, do you know, a discussion when it was go- being in, no. entered into to include Americans? No. So that, so that, so, so Peter, I will get to your points in a minute, but that, that was completely, um, 
that was not the direction in which in which the discussions uh, were were leaning. So uh, Canada had actually been pushing for the implementation of a safe third country agreement uh, throughout the 1990s and and uh, even maybe prior to that. But the United States did not wish to um, enter into this agreement. The reason being, the vast majority of refugee flows come from the United States and into Canada. And so if we're closing the border, those individuals get stuck in the United States. Um, there are significantly fewer people who come from Canada into the United States. And so the quote-unquote burden that we carry in terms of accommodating a large number of refugees is very minimal. So for that primary reason, the United States didn't want to enter into any of this, uh, any, any agreement of this kind for many years. The turning point was 9-11. So after the uh, attacks of September 11th, 2001, uh, number one, there was a, a, a myth circulating that the uh, plane hijackers had entered the United States through the Canadian border, which was uh, proved to be untrue. Uh, but number two, there were uh, there was an enormous push on the part of the United States to fortify the border and to enter into a number of um, anti-terrorist enhanced security agreements with Canada. What ultimately uh, transpired was that the agreement that the parties agreed to have a little bit of one and a little bit of the other. So we signed on to the anti-terrorism and security measures, and the United States signed on to the Safe Third Country Agreement. The concern as to the status of American citizens and their ability to seek refugee protection in Canada, uh, to my knowledge, never surfaced. And I don't think the United States would ever um, recognize that it might itself produce refugees. And and th there are significant uh, obstacles for uh, American citizens to claim refugee protection in Canada. They're not the 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 uh, the kind of population that we that we typically see. Okay, and we're coming up on uh, an hour, and so I guess uh, my last question would be: you know, um, there's a new administration in the U.S., and Donald Trump is uh, fond of uh, you know. Let, let's say that he traveled to Canada and he was to sit down with Trudeau, and he said, you know, Mr. <laughs> Trudeau, I want to make the Safe Third Country Agreement great again. What type of stuff would you like to see in the agreement? Do you think it'd just be gotten rid of? I'm um, like, if you were to make a great agreement between Canada and the U.S. regarding I guess the management of refugee intake. What what would you do? I would scrap the whole thing, but that's never going to happen. Uh, if if I have to accept the fact that the Safe Third Country Agreement remains in effect, I think the most important thing is is um, an ongoing obligation on the part of Canada to meaningfully assess whether the United States can actually be regarded as a safe country for refugee. The process by which that is currently done is um, in inadequate uh, and doesn't uh, doesn't actually ask the burning question of whether or not the United States can meaningfully provide with refugees with 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 what international law basic international law requires so that's number one number two I would uh, revisit the exceptions I would reintroduce some of the exceptions that um, existed when the agreement was first implemented and scrapped so allowing admission for individuals who come from quote-unquote moratorium countries which was an exception that used to be in effect and then uh, was uh, scrapped I would implement clear guidelines for determining how to assess compliance with the remaining exceptions. So who is a family member? What is required uh, in order to determine if you have a family member in Canada or not? 
I would provide much more training for the individual border agents who are tasked with applying this agreement to understand its implications, to understand how it operates, to understand how its exceptions are applied. And I would implement uh, a far greater mechanisms for individuals who are caught by the Safe Third Country Agreement to appeal um, their treatment. And uh, this is with respect to their initial treatment at the border, but also we have this uh, um, oddity in our law whereby if you do enter Canada under one of the exceptions of the Safe Third Country Agreement, make a refugee claim here, but then fail, you cannot access the same appeal mechanisms as other refugee claimants do. So this isn't directly related to the agreement, but nonetheless touches on it. And I would scrap that as well. Oh. All right. Well, thank you very much. That's been a fascinating discussion. Uh, I, I think that uh, uh, I think we've all uh, come out with a, a definite um, uh, I mean, I've learned a few things in, in any event, and I think uh, hopefully it's been helpful for our listeners. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank it's you very much uh, for having me. Great, and uh, I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to have you back at some point in the future. Thanks so, so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Borderlines podcast. You can find us at borderlines.ca. Uh, you can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Please do leave us a review. It's, it does help others to find the podcast. Thank you very much to Robin Bayer and Funk in the Trunk for our music and to our sound tech, Makeli Higgins. Higgins.